I'm Dan, and this is a short film by Georges Méliès. Georges Méliès was a magician, a French magician of the end of the 19th century. And at the time, magic was hugely popular. It's the most popular form of entertainment. Um, hundreds of people would come and see his shows every night. Then, then this new thing came along called cinema. Cinema kind of disrupted the magic industry. People stopped coming to see magic shows. Most magicians just complained. But what Méliès did was he took cinema, experimented with the technologies of film, combined it with his knowledge of magic to see what he created. He created some of the earlier special effects, films like this one. quite crude, but brilliant. I was introduced to Melier where I work. I work at a place called Pervasive Media Studio, where we are a group of academics, startups, designers, uh, game studios. And what we do is take people from different fields and see what happens when you add technology to it. So I'm an in-house software developer, and I've worked with quartets and dance troops. And it turns out all of these things need software these days. And I was working with a group who had a background in magic. And they introduced me to Melier because what they wanted to do was take what they'd learned about magic and combine it with technology to create new things. Um, I was going to talk about that, but they pointed out that I'd agreed to the magician's code. Um, I thought this was going to be like some kind of secret ceremony ritual thing with candles and chanting. No, it's just an NDA on a piece of paper. Um, so I'm just going to have to talk about something else. Um, let's go back to the 1960s. In 1966... I'll just say... Um, in 1966, Stuart Brand is sat on a rooftop in San Francisco. He's bored and feeling uncertain about the future. And these days, if you have a 20-something in San Francisco who's a bit bored, they create a startup. But at the time he did what was natural, he took some LSD. <laughs> Stuart Brand had just been to see Buckminster Fuller speak. Um, this is Buckminster Fuller. He was a sort of inventor, architect, uh, writer. But mainly what he did was he traveled the world giving lots and lots of lectures. He would start his lectures like this. I just say to all of you, hello astronauts, you're all astronauts. Our little spaceship Earth is literally moving around the sun at 60,000 miles an hour, 1,000 miles a minute. And we're moving through our Milky Way system at, at about 1,000 times that speed. So when people say to me, I don't know how you can stand all that travel, I say, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> He, was, he would take something you thought you understood, like living on a planet, and reframe it in a new way. He was an architect who was perfectly happy to call houses just fancy nozzles on the sewage system. <laughs> but most of his inventions uh, were never built. The few things that were, things like the triangular support structures holding up the lights in here. Um, but he created uh, things which were close to fiction. So as a child, I got taken to the design museum by my grandfather, and I saw a Buckminster Fuller retrospective. I saw this design that he had. Bucky thought that in the future, we would all have planes instead of cars. And this meant you could live anywhere. You didn't have to live near a road. So in the future, when you can fly anywhere, you can build your building anywhere. But the only problem is you won't be able to get construction materials to the middle of nowhere without roads. So he thought the natural solution was to prefabricate entire tower blocks and fly them in by zeppelin. <laughs> to build the foundations of the buildings, they would drop a bomb from the zeppelin to clear the land and then just fly away to do the next building. It was brilliant. I didn't understand it was fiction at the time because I'd been watching Thunderbirds. <laughs> He didn't call this failed design, he called it anticipatory design science. 
It was creating solutions to things where the problem wasn't quite ready to be solved, so that in the future when other people came back, the solution would be there waiting for them. So at this lecture where Stuart Brand was, what Bucky spoke about was the problem with mankind, all our pollution, all our wars, that we thought the world was flat and infinite. Not that we believed it, but everything in our daily experience can have told us that that's what it was. The Earth is so much faster than us. And if only we could see the Earth itself, we would be able to make better decisions and get along better. So Stuart Brand, after his trip, on his trip, what he saw was the Earth curved beneath him. He could see the curvature of the Earth and the building he was on rise up into the sky. He could see the Earth, the whole Earth, from space. So after this, he started a campaign called um, why haven't we seen a photo of the whole Earth yet? And after a few years of lobbying, he managed to get this photograph from NASA. This is the first photograph of Earth from space taken by the AS3 satellite. And then he went on and carried on following the teachings of Buckminster Fuller and created the whole Earth catalog. It was everything you would need if you wanted to start a new independent life. If you were setting up a commune, this had all the tools you needed. It had plows, it had seeds. But not just tools, it had the information you needed to make those tools work. It had guides on how to do mining, how to grow crops, um, how to fix a Volvo engine. Not all of them are entirely practical. Some of them to expand your mind. There was a whole section dedicated to Buckminster Fuller books and Marshall McLuhan books. There were some strange esoteric things like how to talk to dolphins and hypnosis. Um, and so this catalogue, the whole Earth catalogue, starts with a very bold sentence. We are as gods and might as well get used to it, which is incredibly bold for what is essentially the Argos catalogue for hippies. <laughs> These days we don't have the whole Earth catalogue. Um, this is the closest we have. This is Alibaba. Um, it's kind of similar to eBay, but as on eBay you would buy one item from someone in their shed in Guildford. In Alibaba you buy a thousand of an item direct from the factory in China. It contains almost anything. Um, things like Cinema 3D glasses in the form of Harry Potter glasses. There are 134 varieties of these made by 18 different manufacturers. Um, there are products that probably shouldn't exist. Uh, these are my laser scissors. They're scissors with a laser so you can cut straighter. Um, I've started collecting all these strange products. I, I recently got uh, an Olympic torch replica cigarette lighter. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure it's LOCOG approved. The logo's a bit squished in strange ways. Um, I've got loads of them. Uh, tiny little photo frame. That's like five pounds from W. H. Smith's, which means it costs like 50 pence to make somewhere in China. Um, this is a clock that's also a laser projector. It's a laser diode behind an LCD screen so that you can project the time. It's broken, inevitably. Um, this is Mitch Altman's TV Be Gone. It's a universal remote with only one button, off. If I press this now, the projector will go off. <laughs> and they're all just like little bits of electronics in black injection molded plastic. We've gotten very good at doing this as a species. There's like 120 million people trying to do it in the Pearl River Delta. But this is my favorite. This is the 808 camera. It's a small HD video camera inside a key ring. And it's not made by a company called the 808 company. There is no product called the 808. What it is, is many companies make these, and they call them different things, key ring cameras, spy cameras, never type spy camera into Alibaba, you'll be horrified, by the way. Um, but there's a chap called Chuck Law. What he does is he collects all of these. He tries to buy them all. There's about 28 that he's identified so far. He disassembles them and works out what the different components are. 
they're mostly leftover mobile phone parts. When he decompiles the firmware in this, he finds ringtones. Um, so when Nokia make a phone and it's not successful, the, the camera parts get sent for recycling and they end up in these. Um, he kind of takes them apart and figures out what they are. He works out a taxonomy of them. He's like the Natural History Museum. The Natural History Museum didn't collect butterflies or finches, but instead worked out categories for obscure Chinese electronics. And he's become the canonical way of naming these now. Um, if you go online, I try to buy this uh, as a number three. They're all numbered um, as a number three 808 camera. But what arrived was a number eight. Um, people lie and say that it's a better camera than it is. And all this is possible because we made billions of mobile phones, and now all the constituent parts of a mobile phone are very affordable. So anything that's got computation, cameras, connectivity, are now quite cheap. You get phones in all sorts of crazy form factors. This is a phone that fits into a key ring. Um, it was designed, um, there's lots of like fake BMW key ring, uh, car key remotes phones. But this one's become hugely popular in the UK to the extent that the government are considering banning it. Because the niche that it has found is amongst prisoners. It's small enough to conceal about a prisoner's person. <laughs> and nobody sat down and designed this. Nobody created a prisoner persona to work this out. <laughs> There's just a large number of people combining electronics in all of its possible combinations. It's a brute force approach to design, and it has unexpected, um, unexpected results. As William Gibson said, the street finds its own use for technologies. Another technology that has lots of unintended consequences is the Foursquare API. This is Please Rob Me. It lists when you're not at home so that people can go and rob you. Um, the Foursquare API returns all sorts of information. One of the things it returns is the gender of the users, which means there are a number of apps like this. This is Girls Around Me. This is a search engine which only shows you check-in by women around you. Um, and every time this sort of thing comes up, people kind of point out that you could opt out of this. You could not use Foursquare. You are posting your information online, and as such, you should expect that people do things like this with it. But then I found this thing. This is SceneTap. It does the same thing. It tells you which bars are nearby, how busy they are, what the ratio of genders in the bars are, and what the average ages are. But this doesn't use Foursquare data. What this uses instead is computer vision technology. They've mounted cameras pointing at all the entrances of the bars and algorithmically measure the faces of the patrons to work out their genders and ages. There is no opt-out for this. There's no opt-out button for your face. And this is in hundreds of American bars in Chicago, San Francisco, uh, Austin. Um, and I was reading through their patent the other day, as I do for fun, and it starts, <laughs> off, it starts off with a description of the current one. The demographic information may include a total number of people currently at a venue, a percentage capacity filled for a venue, the ratios of males to females, an average age of males and females. But then it carries on and adds more things. A ratio of hair colors of customers, an approximate income level of customers, approximate percentages of race and or ethnicity at the venue, approximate heights and weight, uh, percentage of people with glasses and or facial hair, uh, hipster index perhaps, uh, percentage of people, uh, no, descriptions of clothing type, jeans, skirts, sports coats, and general indicators of attractiveness. When we create software, we encode our beliefs and biases, and this is what happens when, you know, Bros write software. <laughs> but they aren't the only ones doing this. Um, this is a camera. You will find this above the doorway to every Apple store. Uh, what it does is it measures the number of people walking in and out of the shops. They've got detailed analytics for the day. And these cameras are quite pervasive now. 
Um, this is an arcade machine I played in Western Supermare. When you sit down, it photographs your face and puts your face in the game so you don't have to type in your name with a steering wheel, which is quite a nice design solution, but it does it without asking your permission. Um, this is a photo booth I went to. There's a camera outside the photo booth that photographs you approaching the photo booth to get your photograph taken. I'm not sure what the utility of it is. But because these components are so affordable, you can put them in things without knowing a purpose in advance. Um, this is a DVD rental vending machine. I'm not sure what this num uh, camera above a number pad is doing. They're in Amazon lockers. Um, and the thing is, you, when I phone up the customer support numbers on the side of these vending machines to ask them why they are watching me, I get quite perplexed responses. Um, the, the customer support staff don't really know what's going on. Um, there's so many of these cameras that you no longer have to carry your own camera. Um, this is the manifesto for CCTV filmmakers. What the manifesto for CCTV filmmakers involves is you go and stage a film that you wish to create, but you don't take any cameras of your own. You don't need to purchase your own equipment. You just do it in a public space where there is CCTV. And then you use the Data Protection Act subject access request <laughs> to get the footage, because under UK law, you can request any personally identifiable information held about you by any company, and CCTV footage counts as personally identifiable under case law in the UK. Um, and this manifesto is actually the clearest manual on how to go about doing this. So recently I caught the bus from Bristol to London. It's a three-hour, slow, boring journey. And on the website of National Express, it says, under amenities, reclining seats, power sockets, CCTV. So I thought, just like when you go to a theme park and they give you a photograph at the end of the ride, <laughs> I would get the most... It's the most mundane souvenir I own. <laughs> it took quite a lot of effort to get to this point. Um, initially, they said that this footage was only for police. I had to send them copies of the Gov UK website that would explain what they were meant to do. Eventually, they sent me this photograph. Um, under the Data Protection Act, they have to blur out the faces of everyone else in the image. They've done it with, like, MS Paint or something. <laughs> They're now refusing to send me the whole three hours of footage because they have to do this to every single frame. And they <laughs> Um, this is a, the Akure vending machine in train stations in Japan. Uh, it has a camera in it. When you approach it, it identifies your gender and age, and then it changes what it shows on the touchscreen based on what it assumes you would most like to buy. So if you're a male Japanese salaryman, it won't show fruit juices because their fruit juices aren't marketed at male salarymen. It changes the choices you're allowed to make based on its preconceptions of you. And what they actually found when they did the analytics for this was male Japanese salarymen were the biggest customers of fruit juices. They all drank them when they were hung over the next day. Um, this is a vending machine by Walls Ice Cream. Uh, if you approach this vending machine and you smile at it, it will give you free ice cream. Uh, it's an, I don't know, an algorithmic approach to encourage happiness, perhaps. Um, and it uses the Shaw Library by the Fraunhofer Institute. Uh, this measures different emotions on the face. And I downloaded the library and I gave it a try myself. And it was okay, but I needed a more scientific way of measuring the effectiveness of this library. So I needed a corpus where I had a photo of the same person doing the same emotion many, many times. <laughs> this is the Tumblr, Nick Clegg looking sad. It's many photos of Nick Clegg looking sad. I put it into the Shaw Library, all of the images, and quantified his sadness. <laughs> so the Shaw Library gives me his age and his gender, how happy he is, how angry he is, how sad he is, and how surprised he is. 
And it fluctuates massively. Uh, in this one, he's believed to be happy, but we all know he's sad on the inside. <laughs> he goes from his late 20s to 69. Um, he's usually male, but in about 20% of cases, he's identified to be female. And out of the 64 images I put in, there is only one image where he is identified as sad by the algorithm. It's this one. My favorite of all these images is this one, because um, David Cameron is not a valid human face. <laughs> and the problem with these algorithms is the advertisers all assume, uh, and all the manufacturers assume, that these algorithms are correct, that they give the correct data about the demographic. But as we can see from this, it's rubbish. Um, this is only one of the problems with these kinds of systems. Another is, they're not very evident. Um, a camera the size of a mobile phone camera mounted on a vending machine or a billboard is pretty much invisible to you. When you watch things like Minority Report, for example, it's crucial to you as the viewer, from a director's point of view, that you understand how the technology works so that you understand what the protagonist is going through. So in Minority Report, every time a camera identifies a person, it flashes and then you get this pulse of blue light on the eyes of the person that's been identified. But this is not what reality is like. A blue laser pulse to the eye is not good user feedback. <laughs> the people who um, manufacture and deploy these would rather they're invisible, rather that we don't see them. So they don't implement it in this uh, transparent way. We don't actually know most of the time when we look at a camera what is happening behind that. We assume in the UK, perhaps CCTV is like grainy VHS tape somewhere that nobody ever watches unless there's a crime. We've kind of, we've kind of absorbed CCTV into our culture so much um, that our Olympic mascot, Wenlock, his eye is a camera. He's not a cyclops, he's a camera, he's a machine. Um, the design document wonderfully specifies <laughs> that Wenlock's eye allows him to record everything. And we're British, we don't particularly care about CCTV, we're quite apathetic. It's a thing that we have lots of, we accept it, it seemed like a good trade-off at the time against things like the Soho pub bombings. Um, and we're not the only ones who are apathetic. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg in New York uh, recently said that drones are inevitable. Um, he kind of gave quite a good subtle interview uh, that the headline doesn't quite convey. Um, he kind of pointed out that surveillance drones are just the same as CCTV cameras with wings. There's no real difference between them in terms of us. If we're concerned about like this hypothetical surveillance drone future, we should be equally concerned about the surveillance that we already have in our everyday lives. Um, and this is Mayor Bloomberg who has fought the giant tobacco and junk food industry successfully. But when faced with surveillance, he just kind of shrugs and says it's inevitable. And this happens a lot. Um, so in response to this criticism about Google Glass, there's this wonderful tweet with a phrase that I love. I don't understand why you people are such Luddites about this. It's the future, take it. It's a good phrase, it's the future, take it. <laughs> I'm not sure I wish to accept all technologies that we create. Some of them don't have great consequences. There are some technologies we should somehow resist. So assuming we as British people were less apathetic, what could we do to fight back against these cameras? We could take quite 
blunt approaches. We could smash the cameras, tear them off the walls, we can spray paint over the lenses, we could wear hoodies, we can pulse lasers that will overload the CCD. We could do what New York Police Department do to stop protesters filming them and use strobe flashing lights. But there are subtler approaches we can take, ones that better understand the technology behind it. This is CV Dazzle by the artist Adam Harvey. It's a series of makeup and hair patterns that render you invisible to the OpenCV Viola Jones Harkerscade facial detection algorithm. And what he's done is he's worked with fashion magazines and hairstylists to create these. When you wear this, it doesn't look obvious that you are hiding from the cameras. It just looks like you're a fashion victim. <laughs> but to create this, he had to go through an incredibly complicated technical process. He had to rewrite the OpenCV libraries so that he could see what was happening inside the algorithms. This is uh, a video he created that shows how this facial detection library works. This is a five minute long video. Everything in this video happens 30 times a second in reality. And the way this library works is, first it converts the image to black and white, that's the third of the information to process, it's quicker. And then it overlays a series of squares with a series of patterns over different parts of the image in sequence. And then um, what it does is compare features underneath in the image with the patterns in this cascade. And it works from the most obvious patterns first. So it looks for the eyebrows first. That's the most defining feature of faces, it turns out. So it looks for a light-colored stripe, a dark-colored stripe on the eyes, and a light-colored stripe again for the nose and cheeks. And then it goes through hundreds of these patterns and works out if there's enough of a pattern in one place, a face is detected. And what I noticed was I'd never seen anyone wear these um, CV Dazzle patterns apart from in Adam Harvey's photos, apart from photo shoots for these magazines. So I gave it a try myself. <laughs> I couldn't quite get it to work. OpenCV still detected my face. Um, incidentally, face detection in OpenCV is incredibly simple. You just do dot detect faces. That's how easy the technology is to implement for yourselves. Um, and I've had this as my Twitter profile photo for a while, and eventually Adam Harvey noticed and sent me a bug report. This is the first bug fix I've had for my face. Um, it turns out it's the covering the bridge of the nose is the important bit that I missed. Um, so having long hair is crucial for hiding from uh, computer vision libraries. Um, the artist Julian Oliver calls this process critical engineering. Um, he speaks about exposing how engineering controls our world, how it encodes politics, how it changes what decisions we could make. He did a very good talk the other, uh, last year at um, I.O. Festival, where he said we have a children's book view of reality. And I don't think he's quite right with that, because we don't even have a children's book view of reality. Children's books are brilliant at explaining how things work. The whole Earth catalog contains lots of children's books, because they're the best way of getting up to speed on a new topic. They're, they're beautiful objects. Things like ladybird books that contain incredibly simple descriptions and good illustrations. Um, I spy books make you engaged with the topic by making you search out all its variations. In fact, when I um, learned about George Melia, I asked the magicians I was working with, how can I learn more about Melia? What's a good introductory text? And they gave me a, a, a title of a book, The Invention of Hugo Cabret. I went on Amazon. I ordered it. It turned up. It was a children's book. And in the book, it shows that um, Melier is, isn't just uh, a filmmaker and a magician. Before that, he built automaton, tiny mechanical machines that he would use in his magic tricks. He had little machines that would dance, that would write. He had a tiny Frenchman that would shoot an actual gun. And none of these machines survived because he dismantled them and used all the cogs and clockworks to build his first film cameras. And there's a wonderful line in the story when uh, the protagonist, Hugo, is being told about these automaton by his father. 
The sole purpose of these machines was to fill people with wonder, and they succeeded. No audience could figure out how these mysterious figures danced or wrote or sang. In the show, Melia would take these machines and remove the clothing and show that it was just clockwork, it was just cogs. You could see it, it was all visible. But because you had no knowledge as of a watchmaker of how clockworks work, it wasn't legible to you. you it was visible but not legible. And uh, filling people with wonder is something that magicians often talk about. They like to reduce people to a sense of childlike wonder. But I find the concept of wonder to be problematic. In this wonderful critical review of Brian Cox's Wonders of the Solar Systems in The Guardian, it states, the rhetoric of wonder is all about encouraging participation, but this infantilizing power dynamic is not conductive to confident involvement or critical inquiry. It creates an inaccessible aura around science, which has little to do with everyday practicalities of what goes on in labs. And this applies to the technologies we create. When we try and create technologies that create a sense of wonder, we end up creating egotistical works, which is fine for entertaining, like magicians, but it's not great when we create technologies that change uh, what happens in everyday life. Both Melier and Buckminster Fuller kind of start from the same point. They kind of play with new technologies and understand what they are capable of and integrate it into their works. But whereas Melier uses it to entertain, Buckminster Fuller instead takes it apart in such a way that he can explain it to you and then creates new inventions which create new possible narratives, new possible futures, his anticipatory design science. And I think we need more Bucky rather than Melier's approach. You may have seen these rubbish bins recently. These are the recycling bins in the city of London. Um, and they're specially designed bins for the age of terror, as the manufacturer says. Um, the problem in the city of London is people drop bombs into bins. The bins make wonderful debris when they explode. And this bin is specially designed to contain the implosion, uh, the explosion. Uh, the only problem is they're incredibly expensive to build, which means you need some kind of business model to support them. And the business model they've chosen is advertising. The, com uh, the company that creates these don't see themselves as an advertiser. They don't see themselves as a refuse collection company, which they are. They see themselves as a content company because these bins have an internet connection. They show news headlines, tube line statuses, and hashtags. But they also do one more thing. They have tracking devices for measuring when people walk past them. They monitor who's present at what time and which other bins you've walked past when, which leads to these wonderful infographics saying things like recycling bins with screens and tracking devices. I mean, it leads to things like the City of London recycling team dealing with data privacy incidents instead of, you know, recycling waste. And the company that make it are completely oblivious to why people would be offended by this. They released ominous statements about orb technology. Uh, information magazine chip in and defend them because Renew hardly conducted the trials in secret. It issued not one but two press releases about what it was doing, neither of which got any coverage at the time. Which is fair enough. But when you're at the bin, you don't know that this is happening unless you read the press releases of bin manufacturers. <laughs> Which is not something I do particularly often. Um, James Bridle describes this when he's talking about drones, but it applies equally to rubbish bins. This is the result of the network's inherent illegibility, its tendency towards seamlessness and visibility from codes to the cloud. Those who cannot perceive the network cannot act effectively within it and are powerless. The job then is to make such things visible which is why he's been war-chalking warnings onto these rubbish bins so that people know what's happening. Um, in addition, the technologist Tom Taylor has been examining these bins to work out how they work. They use uh, Wi-Fi probe requests to sniff the MAC addresses of phones as they pass. And then Taylor goes on to explain ways of changing the MAC address on your laptop and phone so you can avoid being tracked. 
But then he also devises a hypothetical device that would put out so much junk MAC addresses and respond to fake probe requests that it would overwhelm <laughs> these bins and render them useless. But there was no need to do this because the City of London stepped in and stopped the data collection and reported it to the Information Commissioner's office. This is the City of London, the highest density of CCTV cameras in the world. Um, every road going in and out the city goes through a checkpoint where ANPR cameras measure, uh, record the cars, the identities of the cars. And even they think this was a bit much when it came to surveillance. <laughs> and in all this, we kind of forget that they're not very good at being bins. <laughs> Like, along the line, there's been some incredible scope creep from, you know, <laughs> taking my waste and disposing of it. And it's become like an advertising platform that measures metrics. They describe it as a tracking cookie implemented for the real world. Their use case description is going to a BMW dealer and then being followed by BMW adverts on every bin that you walk past. And so this will happen again and again and again. Every time we put software into objects, they will behave in ways that aren't obvious from the physical form. And so it falls to us as designers and developers to find ways to explain this to people, to make it legible. Traditionally, we ex leave explaining the world to journalists, academics, artists, and they do a great job of this. But as we see from things like the Guardian coverage of the Edwin Snowden leaks, they don't always have the technical literacy they need. They need our help for this. And so if I was a bold American like Stuart Brand, I might say, we are as gods and might as well get good at this. But I'm not that bold. I will instead quote William Gibson when he was asked by the Paris Review about why he had created the novel Neuromancer, what the thinking behind it was. And Gibson just responded, I had no manifesto. I just had discontent. And that's all I have. Thank you. Thank you.